You're listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast, your primary source of information related to the hospitality industry in Washington State. Good morning and welcome. Today we have with us Dan Kesner of Kesner Consulting Group and Leah Bone, also of Kesner Consulting Group. Uh, they have combined about 55 ex- years of experience in the hospitality industry, and they are co- here today to talk about managing the cost of goods sold in your facility. Um, we are recording this, and it will be up on our website later on today, or you can see it along or uh, listen to it as a podcast in your car, and we'll also have a copy of the PowerPoint too. Um, so now I will go ahead and hand this off to Dan and Leah. Good morning. Hi. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for the introduction. And, and thank you for uh, working with us through this process and, and inviting us to, um, to this uh, opportunity to present to Washington Hospitality Association. Um, you know, one, a couple of things first is, you know, I want to thank Leah. Leah helped me put this presentation together as well. And She'll be taking questions throughout this, um, so please feel free to uh, bring questions in, and she'll try to answer them as we go. And then we'll have a couple of natural stopping points throughout where we can kind of catch up and and answer any questions that you may have. Um, the goal today is uh, to really just kind of get a basic understanding of managing cost of goods, and um, you know this presentation is gonna I think is going to be great for everybody. Um, some of the things, if you're a more sophisticated operator, use software uh, more often. Uh, some of the tools that I'm going to be showing you are, um, you probably already have software to do all of this. Um, but I think, you know, we've created a really good flow chart that I use with my clients very often on how to kind of get through this cost of goods process and then how to maintain it going forward. And I think that could be a great training tool uh, for you and your teams. Um, and additionally, there's some other tools in here that I think would be great for everybody to use, despite whether or not um, you have big software solutions or not. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, this is my our cost of goods um, flowchart, and I want to briefly take us through this uh, step by step so you kind of get a lay of the land. But then we're going to come back um, and there's an individual slide for each one of these, and we'll go through in much more depth. So the first problem that we kind of face is uh, what is our ideal cost of goods? Uh, you know, either maybe we're a new restaurant starting up or, or, or we've never really taken a close look at our cost of goods and what they should be. And so we need to figure out a solution to find out and define what our cost of goods are. And then, you know, that comes from creating a performer budget, which will, again, we're going to talk about all these things. And then we have our budget and, you know, maybe we're operating for a little while and um, we're pulling reports, we're getting our P&Ls, but the information isn't great. And so what are some, what are some better ways and better uh, tools that we have to create great information? And the first one, and honestly, the most, one of the, the most important things that we use with our clients and um, something that we'll be providing to everyone here today, um, if you'd like, is a declining budget template. And the declining budget, you know, is, you know, solution oriented when you have problems, but it's also a great way to maintain things going forward. Um, 
And then let's say we do the declining budget and we find out um, it tracks purchases. So we find out that our purchases are too high. Well, you know, there's a couple different reasons why our purchases could be too high. And the, and the first one is our recipes are not costed out properly. So either we don't have our recipes costed or they're too high. So the, the first step in all of this is to um, go through a recipe costing exercise. From there, we take that costing information and we do what we call a menu engineering report. And that would end up delivering us um, a theoretical food cost based off of our product mix and our recipes. And then one of two things happens. Either our um, engineering looks good, so uh, or looks high. So our, our we go through the menu engineering report, it delivers, a, let's say, a, a, a theoretical cost of goods of 32% and our target is 28. Well, then we know right there and then that the first thing we need to do is go back and rewrite our recipes, recreate new recipes, and then we would conduct our menu engineering. But most of the time when we go through this, our engineering looks good. But again, we know our purchases are too high or our cost of goods is higher than we want. So then we have to look at what we think of as five potential problems. And, and there's nuances to all these, but I try to... Uh, uh, compartmentalize these into five different buckets. So we've got uh, problem number one, which is overspending and waste. Problem number two, which is overportioning. Uh, problem number three is overprepping and the waste from that overprepping. And then we have theft or kind of unsanctioned staff consumption. And then we also have vendor problems and along with that, you know, problems with receiving. So Let's go back up to the very first problem, which is problem number one, and you know, identifying what our ideal cost of goods are. So there's a couple ways to do this, but basically, um, you know, when clients come to us, uh, we create a performa, and um, and I'll show you kind of what a performa looks like here in a moment. But you know, it's a it's a balancing act. What, what we're trying to do is, is, you know, understand what it's going to take to get our whole business profitable. So we have to take into account our labor model, um, our, the type of menu that we have. Is it is it an expensive menu, more like a steakhouse where, you know, we have high contribution dollars, but but higher cost of goods? Or are we um, a lower price point play, uh, uh, operation that needs to make sure that we have um uh, a very good low cost of goods percentage. Then we obviously have our rent and our overall facility costs, um, you know, again, our business model, things like that. But in the ball, as a ballpark figure, and again, every restaurant's different, we want our total cost of goods, <clears throat> excuse me, to be between 24 and 27%. That's generally where I find um, our restaurants being profitable. So Let's let's go ahead and dive into a performa. And I know this may be kind of hard to see on um, on people's screens. So let me I'll just kind of walk through what again what a performa is. So you know a performa is predictive, and you know it's what we think we're going to do. And um, you know you can create different ones and be more conservative with some than others. But in the you know it, it you know it it starts with assumptions. So. Basic assumptions would be your hours of operation, um, how many seats do you have in your restaurant, how many turns are you going to do in your restaurant on which days and how many day points, and then what's your guest average. And that kind of first gives us a good sense of what our sales would be. 
And then from there, um, you know, we want to add in all of our known fixed uh, operating costs. We also have, uh, you know, for new restaurants, when we don't know those, we have some very basic formulas, you know, either some are based on sales, some are based on labor, of what are, uh, some are based on your square footage uh, that produce those fixed cost estimates for us. And then we have to create a labor model. Um, and, you know, this particular performa, you know, has a place where you can sort of build your schedules. And then that gives you your labor cost, the front of the house, back of the house, and, and your salary employees. And then from there, then we have to start doing this dance with our cost of goods um, projections and say, okay, well, we, we know the industry standards are those, so let's plug those in. And are we profitable with those? And if we're not, then maybe we need to think about trying to bring our food costs instead of targeting at 28%, maybe we need to target it at 26 to get to the profit, um, the profit margins that we want. So it's a great tool. It can also be turned into a budget afterwards. So we can, you know, you can add columns and then this is your targets. And then you'd have col add columns for your actual performance and then the variance to those performances. So, um, you know, I highly suggest creating a performa um, um, if you're trying to tackle, kind of look anew at your concept and say, how do we do better? So let's say we've created this performa and uh, we're operating and and we're getting information. And you know, one of the one of the main things that I get when I go talk to my clients first is a PL. And a lot of times this PL doesn't usually give me uh, real solid information. A lot of times, as in this example, there's no percentages. You know, I can't easily see what my percentage of cost of goods sold is. Um, there's no targets uh, to hit. And, uh, and obviously with no targets, there's no variances. And then oftentimes too, um, things are lumped together. You know, in this particular situation, you can see like cost of drinks sold. So, so that doesn't tell me anything. That doesn't break out wine, coffee, any bev other any beverages, uh, spirits, things like that. So, so we need to make sure that whatever reporting we get has quite a bit of detail, as much detail as what we would see in a performa. Um, other issues, you know, we're not really talking about labor, but other issues I often see is that all the labor gets lumped together, um, you know, in staff salary and wages, even sometimes the insurance and everything else gets lumped in there as well. And, you know, it's really important to make sure that our reporting shows us, um, you know, things separated out by front of the house, kitchen, salaried employees, you know, as much detail that's necessary to help you troubleshoot when you when there are problems. So the best tool for reporting that I've found, and it has a lot of added benefits, is what we call a declining budget. So uh, this declining budget, you know, it does a lot of things for us, but I'm going to kind of walk you through how this particular sheet is set up. And again, this is the, something that I'm going to be uh, making available for people along with a, you know, a 30-minute call to get this set up and teach you how to use it. And that's how simple it is. It only takes about 30 minutes. So First, what we do in a, in a declining budget is at the beginning of the week, we want to uh, forecast our sales. So I don't know, again, how easy you can see where my pointer is going, but, but we basically want to um, uh, start with our projected sales. And then we're going we're gonna to go down to um, uh, looking at our sales by category. So we could pull a PMIX report and easily see, okay, well, coffee makes up 23% of our sales, any beverage makes up 11, 
food 66%, things like that. You may also notice here that I have supplies as 100%. I definitely think of supplies as something that we track as a cost of goods and not an operating expense. Um, but we do that based, because that has no revenue center, we do that based off of your total sales. And that's why that says 100%. So then the next column over, we have this um, amount column. And, and basically that's saying, this is how much money we're going to be bringing in um, each week in each one of these categories. This is our category sales. Then the next column over after that is our cost of goods um, target, which is, you know, which came from our performa. Uh, you know, what our estimates were. So we want our coffee cost of goods at 13. And again, this is fictitious numbers, but we want our NA beverage at 12. We want our food cost at 29. And in the next column after that, that gives us our, our budget. So this is basically, you know, based on our total, sale, our, our total sales times our cost of goods target gives us how much money we can spend each week on that particular sales category, all right? So then at that point, um, we start our week. And again, a lot of this is just formulas. All you're really doing is plugging in your total sales or your total forecasted sales. And then going through it, we, uh, we start entering in our invoices. And so you may say, oh, well, Dan, we already put our invoices in, a, in some other accounting software. And I think that's great. But if your accounting software doesn't give you something this simple and easy to use on a weekly basis, it's worth the time to add them into here as well. And I, I've made it super easy. All it is is your, the day you ordered it, the vendor, uh, the category that, that, that those purchases uh, need to be assigned to. And sometimes you have a, you know, an invoice that has multiple uh, categories. So you, you break that out and you, and you make multiple entries. And throughout the week, you put these in. And again, it shouldn't take more than about you know, a minute and a half to two minutes a day. And then at the end of the week, they're all in there. Um, well, let me back up first. So once we, as we enter those in, we have this declining budget box over here on the right. And uh, what that's showing you is how much money you've spent in each of these categories and then how much money you have remaining to spend. Um, so it knows what that budget was from the beginning of the week set up from our budget column. And so basically um, it's deducting from that. And there's some color coding in here to show you that if, you're, um, if you've overspent, uh, it turns red. If you're getting within 20% of your budget, it turns yellow. And if it's green, it means you have plenty of budget left for that particular category. So you're watching this, ideally watching this throughout the week and you're, and you're making sure that you, when you're ordering that you're trying to stay within this particular budget. And then the, the added benefit to the declining budget is that at the end of the week, you would put in your um, actual sales, both in total, and then you'd enter in your category sales, which should generally be a pretty easy point of sale report. And then from there, um, you know, we actually get our, our actual purchases cost of goods for that particular week. So for the example of coffee, which is on here, and again, I apologize if it's hard to see this, um, you have, you know, your budgeted cost of goods for uh, coffee was at 13%, but you actually spent 25% of, of your sales on coffee that week. So, so then you have a variance of almost 12%. So what this is great for is if somebody's doing the ordering or your kitchen team's doing the ordering and they, um, and then the GM is reviewing this or the owner's reviewing this, it creates a great conversation, a week, great weekly conversation about spending. 
And, you know, so, you know, what I do with my clients is, and this is a great thing for owners or, or leadership to do, is to, this gets emailed to me once a week. And then from there, you know, I say, oh, it looks like your food purchases were too high this week. Why is that? You know, and they'll, and a lot of times they have great reasons. Maybe, oh, you know, we have this private dining event uh, uh, on Monday and we need to purchase a product this week so that we can get prepped up. And I say, that's fantastic. I should then see a, um, a reduction in your purchases cost of goods for the following week, because that week would have all the sales, but none of the cost of that particular event, right? And then over a four to five week period, you know, we track this and it totals up on a, on a, on a separate sheet. And it gives us a, a really good look at how, how, I, how we trended over a longer period of time. And in general, what I find is that trend matches pretty closely to, you know, a, a cost of goods that we do with a full inventory. And if you're a place that doesn't do a full inventory, I suggest you do, but if, if that's just too much work to manage, this is still a tool that you can really count on to make sure that um, your, your cost of goods are in line. All right. So, um, so let's move on to problem number three. Let's, we now have great information. Um, we're looking at it every week. And the next problem that we find is our purchases are too high. So we've done the declining budget and our, and our purchases are higher than what we need. So this next piece is we need to cost out our recipes and we need to create a menu engineering report. And when we cost out our recipes, we want to make sure to do it for at least 80% of the, the items that make up 80% of our sales. So, you know, I know that we don't all have the, all the time in the world to sit in an office and create recipes. Um, so some of these smaller recipes that don't equate to a lot of sales, we, we, we don't have to have them. It's ideal to have them, but to get a good sense of our theoretical food cost and recipe costing, we don't have to do them. So let's move on to the, what is a recipe costing sheet? So again, there's a lot of great software out there that do this, um, but in essence, a recipe costing sheet is the first column is your ingredients. Column number two is basically your, uh, the quantity of those ingredients that go in, your, um, how you're measuring those ingredients, um, and then the unit cost of those ingredients and then the total cost. So um, what, we'll, what we'll do is, is, you know, basically it says, you know, we have uh, six ounces of romaine lettuce for 11 ounces and 11 cents an ounce. That ends up being 66 ounces. And, it, and then that drops down into our total cost. We enter in our menu price at the bottom that gives us our recipe cost of goods percentage. This particular item would be 22.28% good cost of goods. And then uh, that would also give us our menu item contribution, which is the dollar value that this menu item is producing, which is also important. So when if you're going to build out an Excel version of this uh, uh, recipe costing sheet, you need to make sure that the first thing you do is build recipes for your batch recipes. So like your like let's say your marinara. So we need to create our marinara batch recipe, and then that ends up being an ingredient as one of our ingredients in what I call our line ready recipes, like this chopped salad. Okay. So once we have all of our recipes costed, we move into this menu engineering. And the best way to start with a menu engineering report is to go into your point of sale and, and get a product mix or P-mix report. And in general, those P-mix reports would give you the name of your item, 
the quantity of those items sold, hopefully sorted in, in you know by the highest selling items first, and then um, and then your and then the sales resulting from those. Now, I always pull a, I always try to export that so I get a CSV or an Excel file because that makes you know a lot less work to um, then you know utilize the data uh, further without having to type everything out. And so when we look at, the, we have the quantity and it's sorted again um, from high to low, we have our sales. And I generally think about using uh, gross sales. So pre-discounted items when I'm trying to calculate my theoretical food costs. And then uh, we have our recipe costs. So the, this is the percentage that came off of your uh, recipe costing sheet. And that's why it's necessary to do the recipe costing sheet before we do this. Um, and then we have our uh, recipe cost for items sold. So that's basically the items sold times the recipe cost. That's how much. So for this first example, this house burger, we spent $14,500 to produce, uh, produce $51,000 in sales of this item. And then we have our menu item contribution. So what, what we end up doing is we total up all of our uh, recipe cost of items sold, um, which in this particular report is $125,000. And that, and then we divide that by our total sales, which gives us 25.15%. So a couple of reasons why this is great is I have a lot of clients that come to me and, and say, you know, we our cost of goods targets at 29%. We're hitting 28, we're actually at 28%. Um, our recipes are written at 28%. And I'm like, what do you mean by your recipes are written at 28%? And they've basically taken all of their recipes and averaged them out. So as if each recipe has the same weight or value um, in this calculation. And what they're missing is the fact that their product mix isn't incorporated. And, and a lot of times uh, what we find is that your, when, you, when you do this menu engineering report, your theoretical food cost is lower than what your, um, hopefully lower than what your average cost of goods is when you average out all of your recipes with even value. So it basically, it, it tells you that you know, hey, we're leaving two, three, four percent on the table, and so we need to we need to ratchet our target down a little bit and work work harder to achieve that. Um, it also can be super enlightening if your theoretical cost of goods is higher than what you think your target should be, because then we know that we got to again go back and rework our recipes or maybe re rearrange our menus so that our more profitable items attract more attention on our physical menus. And, and get better sales. The other great value in this, uh, in a menu engineering report is that it allows you to see your higher cost items, which I have uh, highlighted in, in, in pink on here, is it shows us that, hey, you know, our these are the, our highest cost items or ones that are way over our target. And how are they selling in proportion to everything else? Because obviously we want our most profitable items to be our best sellers. So, um, you know, taking, for example, that lamb burger at 38.9% in this example, like having it kind of be in the middle of our, of our menu engineering is a nice place for it to be. We don't want it to be too high up on the list unless the, unless our model is to have that item contribution be the driving factor. And we're really making sure that those, the, the dollar value is what we're looking at. And we want to make sure that that's um, one of our better sellers. So, but menu engineering is great. If you have software to do it, I would do it on a regular basis. 
Um, if not, you know, creating a simple sheet like this is super, is very easy once you get the product uh, mix export. So let's go ahead and check in, see where we are in this flowchart. So, um, you know, we went through all, you know, a few of the things, and then now we're at this, um, uh, we're looking at our menu engineering report. So if that menu engineering report looks high, then, you know, again, one of the things we want to do again is rewrite our recipes and make sure that we, or get new recipes and make sure that they are below our cost of goods target. Um, and then we want to redo the menu engineering. But as I said, most of the time, our uh, menu engineering looks great. And, um, and it's below our cost of goods target. And from there, we got to step into our, what are our potential problems? But before I do that, I, I just want to stop for a moment and see, talk, have Leah chime in and see if there's any urgent questions that we need to cover. No questions so far, Dan. Great, great. Either I'm confusing everybody or we're doing an okay explaining things. Um, that's great. So moving on. So if our engineering looks good, uh, and, but our, either our purchases or our cost of goods are too high, then, you know, uh, then we have then we we can look at five different problems. You know, you know, we have the overspending and waste, we have overportioning, we have overprepping and waste from that. And then we have staff, theft or staff consumption, or you know, also like giving away free food to guests is also a big problem. And then we have vendor and receiving problems. So let's dive into the first one, which is overspending and waste. So the first thing for overspending is going back to the declining budget, is that we want to make sure we utilize that and track our spending over long periods of time and use that as a tool to try not to overspend more than what we're allowed each week um, and making sure that, you know, things are, 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 are we're in the, the, in the right, right set of cost of goods for each week. Um, I know that maybe some of you are thinking, oh, well, if we buy an extra one thing um, or more than what we need, that's going to put us over budget, we get a better price. And that's okay. We can do that, but then that gets justified and, and we have that conversation with our leadership to keep that conversation about spending going. The next really important piece of um, tracking our spending is proper order guides. And in this example, you know, I think a proper order guide, you know, should be, um, you know, we, we break them out by which company we're ordering from. And, you know, I like to put the phone number on there, maybe even the sales rep's name. And then um, we first put things in, uh, you know, location. So in this particular case, this is a meat order. So maybe we have some things in the walk-in and we have some things uh, in the freezer. And then uh, we, I put in what, what we call a sort order. And this sort order is there to help us go from, well, you know, shelf to sheet. We want to make sure that this order guide is in the order that things live on on our shelves. And What's helpful with this sort order is, is let's say we move one item um, to, you know, you know, we move one item in the walk-in to somewhere else and we need to reorder our order guides. And, and what you can do there is then just type in the order in which they show up in your walk-in and then resort by those numbers and it puts everything back into shelf to sheet um, sequence. Then we have the item name and then we have the SKU uh, of that item if you're ordering by SKU. And then we obviously have the order unit. So do these come in 20 pound cases, 10 pound cases? Um, you know, what I would suggest if things come in 
multiple uh, order units that you list them multiple times on your order guide. And then we have our count column. So we would go into the walk-in, we'd go into our dry storage, we'd write down how, what we see and how much we see of each item. And then we have our PARs. Um, you know, I'm skipping over the order quantity. And then we have our PARs and our PARs are set up by all the different days that we order. Let's say this particular meat company order comes in, we order it five days a week. So we have five columns of PARs and those PARs are adjusted based on each day. And if you can see this, they kind of escalate throughout, you know, as we get further in the week. Um, and, and then uh, we look at our count, we look at our orders, and, or we look at our count, we look at our PARs, and then we establish what our order is. Um, I put orders before our PARs so that when you go in and you actually make the order, it's a little bit easier for you to read um, as you're on the phone or entering this into an online ordering sheet. So, um, you know, the, the biggest thing I see is that people don't use an order guide. They don't go and count uh, first. And they, either, you know, they're sitting in the office or at home or at the bar and they're calling in their orders. And you can do that, um, but you have to make sure you've done your order guides first. Okay. So moving on to potential problem number two is over portioning. So one of my favorite things to do in a restaurant for lots of different reasons, but over portioning is one of them, is instituting a dish of the day program. And what dish of the day is, is that, you know, the restaurant takes one dish every single day from their menu and they and the chef or the kitchen leadership pulls out the recipe book and gets on the line with the cook and, you know, and a scale or portioning tools and they make that menu item exactly the recipe. And I actually suggest probably making it a couple times. Once the one time the chef can make it, one time the cook can make it. And this has a lot of benefits. Number one, it recalibrates the cook onto what the proper portioning sizes are. Because who knows over a year or two since the last time that person was trained in that particular dish, if they're really following the recipe anymore. And then what it also does is it gives the front of the house an opportunity to see the dish uh, in its in its proper size, shape, and proportions. Um, the other thing that it does is it puts an emphasis on a particular menu item for the day. So what we would like what we like to do is, you know, that dish comes over the pass, it gets put on the counter, and then we start asking our front of the house staff, hey, what are the ingredients in this dish? What are the allergies? What are the cooking methods? What farm does this particular ingredient come from? Um, we break out the product knowledge sheets, and if you, you know if, if you don't have product knowledge sheets, they have all that information I just listed on there, and, and I highly suggest putting those together. And we use it as a resource for that day to retrain our staff on that particular dish. And what we do is you calendar out your whole menu so that each day we're you know we know that we're going to cover one dish, and and we're not going to miss dishes over the course of a month or two. Um, if your menu changes a lot then make sure you start with those new items first, okay? Um, the next tool is, is portioning tools, right? And uh, I know that these aren't always the most fun thing to do and it maybe sometimes your line cooks are pretty resistant to them, but you can make them pretty simple. Either it could be a scoop, uh, you can get scoops custom made, um, in fact, or you can use certain size ramekins or bowls or um, whatever. Uh, whatever fits that, that whatever that recipe cost should be. And when we're doing that, we wanna make sure we start with our most costly items first. So uh, making sure that, um, you know, the 
items that if we over portion being us the most, we want to make sure that those we use portioning tools for those. I also like to think about using items that are have very strong flavors. Let's take that chopped salad example again. If there's red onion in that salad and they double the portion of that, that's really going to affect the taste of that salad. And and so we want to make sure that we're not um, we're not over portioning on those too. And then the this the other tool is uh, pre portioning. And again, pre portioning in bags or ramekins, deli containers, and really doing this by weight so we're super accurate. And um, we always want to start with our most costly items first. So maybe we have sauteed chicken and we want to pre-portion that, that raw chicken into six ounce bags. Um, but also we want to make, we, this is also an opportunity to make sure with our quality assurance items. So let's say we're having a hard time cooking our pasta properly um, or it's taking too much time to cook our pastas. A great way to handle that is to pre-cook your pastas, put them in bags and, um, and then just reheat them. So that's those are some tips for over portioning. Um, the next problem is, you know, problem number three, which is over prepping and waste. So the first thing we need to do is create prep lists with PARs. And, and this is going to look a lot like our order guide. Um, so, you know, we, we're going to count. We're going to look at our PAR and then we're going to figure out how much there is to be made. And um, uh, you know, we, again, we want to make sure that that is uh, in shop to sheet order so that it's quick and easy to create um, these uh, uh, prep guides and that, you know, the quicker it is, the easier it is, the more often it's going to be done properly. Um, another way, another thing is, is with our batch recipes is to make sure that we have batch recipes in multiple sizes. Uh, we don't want to have a cook make twice the salad, amount of salad dressing than they need um, or the twice that will be sold, that will, that twice the amount that they need and it, half of that is going to go bad before we get to use it on the line. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, not all of our cooks are great mathematicians. So making sure that these order guides are set up with measure or sorry, these batch recipes are set up in, in with in different sizes that it saves them from doing the math that's needed to have or double a, a recipe. And then we also with these prep uh, list, we want to make sure that the PARs are in, in sequence with what our batch sizes are. So if we say that we need a half a gallon of Caesar dressing on Tuesdays, then make sure that you have a batch recipe for half a gallon. Um, and then the next part is uh, pro just proper organization. Um, you know, one of the biggest reasons why we over prep is because people go into the walk-in to look for things and they can't find it. And so then they think, oh, it's not there. And we need to make more. So, you know, again, all items should be labeled with item name, employee name, and date. Um, you know, your refrigeration and dry storage um, should be labeled and organized even better if the shelf is labeled for what items go in that spot. Um, you know, the line refrigeration should also be labeled and organized, you know, labeling the shelf with which go, what goes where. Um, or you can even do uh, station diagrams for, for line refrigeration. Um, and then items should, you know, items just should never be in random places and that should be constantly policed and should be a constant conversation. And that last point also uh, brings us into theft or staff consumption, staff, unsanctioned staff, staff consumption. Sorry, I can't talk uh, this long without uh, missing a few beats. Um, so first we want to do weekly inventory and part of that weekly inventory is instituting some kind of waste sheet. Super easy to do. Um, you, you know, you print out your product mix. You just take the names. 
you're at a column for what, how, what, what, you know, how much is wasted and why, and you post that on the wall and you make sure, and you really institute a culture when things get wasted, it gets written down. And then we add, then we start doing our inventory and, um, you know, again, you know, weekly inventory can take a lot of time. So I'm not suggesting you have to do everything all week, but we want to do our high cost items. And we also want to make sure our team sees us doing these inventories and counting. Then we get into proper organization, all the same things about proper ordering. Um, you know, my comment on this is that if, if we're unorganized, you know, our staff and team could potentially think, oh, I can take this because nobody's ever going to notice. So we want to make sure we're so organized and that we're doing these weekly inventories that um, our team knows that we are always on top of what we have. Um, and that leads us into this establishing omnipresence. So, you know, as I said, letting the staff um, know that inventory is being done and then ask questions about organization and quantities. You know, let's say, um, you know, we started the week with 10 New York steaks and we sold five and there's only three left. Well, you know, ask, ask who's ever cooking those steaks. Say, hey, you know, what happened this week? We're missing two steaks. Uh, did anything happen that didn't get on the waste sheet? Or where do you think those things might have went? And, oh, chef, remember, this was dish of the day this week, so we used the two for that. A lot of times there's great explanations, but, uh, and you're not trying to catch people in, in a catch-22, but what you're trying to do is let them know that you know. So the last kind of potential problem bucket is vendor or vendor problems or, or uh, receiving problems. So um, when, when an order comes in, that's the first step, is we want to inspect everything for quality, quantity, and or wait before the delivery person leaves. That's super important. And then we want to also compare that order to the invoice that, uh, that we were given. Um, and then we want to take the invoice and compare it to the order guide or the purchase order that was. So we want to make sure that we didn't get anything we didn't order on that invoice. And we also want to make sure that we, we know, hey, uh, we ordered X, but, but it's not on the invoice and we didn't get it. And now we need to troubleshoot and figure out how to get that product in. So proper receiving practices are super important. And then the next part is we want to track our pricing and high cost or high volume items. And again, this could be something as simple as pulling a, uh, pulling a, a, a list of all of your prepped items or, or taking your order guides and highlighting certain items that you want to track pricing on and having multiple columns uh, with different dates for maybe let's say we're going to track the pricing on that sheet for two months. And, and we just write in what the price was. Um, if you have software that you feed your, um, feed your invoices in, uh, generally they will create a price tracking um, report for you. And it's super important to, take, to, to take, make sure that you look at that. And then if you can incorporate that information into a new menu engineering report, um, that'll also tell you how much those price increases are affecting your theoretical cost of goods. Um, so you can get a lot of value out of that. And if the product is getting too expensive, then, you know, we need to ask why that is. Is that, you know, purposeful? And then we need to ask about, our, obviously, ask about our alternative products. And then maybe we need to go look at an additional vendor if, that, if there are no alternative products and that prices are going to keep going up. And then ultimately, we need to change the menu. And that could just be a recipe change or that could be a full new menu item. Okay. So that kind of finishes all of our potential problems. And 
the last thing I want to leave you with is, um, you know, this declining budget is, you know, I think one of the greatest tools that a restaurant can utilize to, 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 for cost of goods, to track their spending, to understand what their purchases amount, you know, the purchases percentages are each week. And, and it literally takes less than 10 minutes a week. And, and so it's, it's money, it's time and, um, you know, time, well, time and is money. So it's time and money well spent. And again, you know, I'm happy to make this available to anybody. Um, I get, you know, I think uh, when we move into questions, we can put my email address into, um, into the chat and you can feel free to email me and we can, we can set up a time to talk. So moving on to questions. Yes, if anyone has any questions, you can put them in the Q&A tab at the bottom of the presentation. We'd be happy to answer any. No questions so far. So um, Melissa um, has a question about um, being a franchisee and the fact that they don't control a lot, but they think their costs are, can you talk a little bit, Dan, about whether costs are driven by increasing sales, like thoughts on how sales drive costs is Melissa's yeah. question. Yeah, so um, generally our cost of goods should be pretty linear with our sales. Um, the only time it's not is when we over prep or overproduce product and then it doesn't get sold. And so then low sales can ultimately affect our cost of goods. But in general, um, you know, in a well-run well situation, we should see our cost of goods being pretty consistent as our sales increase. You know, it's different than labor. You know, as our, as our sales increase with labor, um, you know, we'll see our labor percentage actually start to go down because ultimately it, you eventually reach a point with your labor costs that you're kind of at max staff and, um, and then you get some operating leverage as your sales increase. But with cost of goods, it's, um, it's, it's kind of, it should stay pretty much the same regardless of what your costs are, unless your costs are so low, or, sorry, unless your sales are so low that you're, that you're throwing away product. And in which case, then I'd probably recommend, you know, shrinking your menu a little bit so that you're not over prepping. And then, you know, one thing for a franchisee too, you know, to plug the declining budget one more time is, you know, that's a great tool that you could utilize um, that's outside all of the uh, tools and reporting that's been mechanized for your franchise. So, um, you know, and that'll give you really great information. So, you know, it's something to kind of utilize on the side to, to track your spending. Anything else? Um, no okay. other questions. Thank you so much. All right. Well, great. Well, it really was a pleasure to talk to everybody today. And um, I look forward to hearing from you if you'd like the declining budget. And, um, you know, keep keep working on those cost of goods. And this presentation will be available. So I think these, that flow chart could be a really great training guide for your team when trying to have them understand what's a good cost of goods uh, process. So. Thanks again for spending one your more, time your busy schedule. One more, oh, great. One more quick yeah. question, Dan. I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm -hmm. um, Artac is, is asking, is Q factor something to be considered? Q I'm not factor. sure. Yeah. I'm not sure what, yeah. I'm wondering if you can expand on that, yeah. 
see if he can get back to us. So if anybody else watching knows what Q factor means, um, I still run into things I don't always know what the definition is. No, okay. Well, oh, here it is, maybe. It's the cost of anything extra that is required in production and service of the menu. Got it, got it. Okay, so yeah, so I, you know, in some situations, let's say you're you're a heavy takeout, um, you know, you're a heavy takeout restaurant, or you know, you always have to provide disposable silverware or things like that. That could be um, that can add. You could actually add those items into your cost of goods for that particular item, and that's. A totally reasonable thing to do. Um, I think um, I think that um, uh, other, I'm trying to think of other items that could could be bucketed into that. But but yeah, if there's a particular item or particular usage, you know, I have a lot of restaurants are using 100% compostable even when dining in now, and so I would definitely take the take those out of the supplies category and and fold that into your cost of goods and adjust your cost of goods accordingly. What's the second question here? We do have another question about labor costs. So this question mm -hmm. is from Sarah. With the cost of labor going up so much, do you have a framework for deciding to buy ready-made versus making ingredients for recipes? And her example is that, you know, could you already be buying chopped carrots versus paying someone to chop them? Sure, sure. Yeah, so it's not a perfectly easy question to answer, but um, but in general, you know, if you have a produce company that has huge machines that can chop carrots for you um, and then deliver those pre-chopped um, at an economical price, then 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 absolutely it's a it's a great way to go as long as the quality is at, at the same level as what you would you would be being able to produce in your own kitchen. Um, you know, I guess one of the biggest things to think about there is, you know, to you know track your labor on that particular item and how much time is being spent on cut carrots and then add that to your purchases amount for those carrots. And if that combined um, combined cost ends up being less than what you can purchase the product for uh, from your produce vendor and you're happy with that product, both, both on quality and availability, then, then it's probably a good idea to get it from your, um, from your vendor. One, one of the other things to keep in mind too, though, is making sure you don't have to over order. So maybe you're only gonna go through three pounds before the carrots go bad and and the the pack, the pack size is five. You know, you wanna make sure you take that into account as well. Great, do we have one more? Um, I don't see another question, Dan. Uh-huh. Looks like it looks like Zachary had a um, comment on the buying purchasing pre prepped items that you know there's more processing and adds more preservatives, and and that's a good point, Zachary. I think um, you know you want to make sure that your um, the products you're getting are of the quality and standards that you have um, in your in your kitchen. Great. Well, this was super fun, and um, I hope the hospitality association will have us back at some point and. 
and we can keep these conversations going. Thank you both so much um, to everybody who's watching. We will have this up on our website later on today, or you can find it wherever you get your podcasts underneath the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast. And Dan and Leah, thank you both so very much for your presentation today. Great. Thank you. Everyone take care. Thank you for Bye -bye. having us. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, wahospitality.org, where you can learn more about the restaurant and lodging industries and the Washington Hospitality Association. Be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for that effort. Until next time.